Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we talked about the first few years after the death of Clothar. The period from 561 to 567 was pretty busy, with two civil wars and multiple scandals. However, the death of Charibert and the arrival of the Visigothic princesses would change the political landscape yet again. Now everyone has had a chance to settle into their seats, it's time to shake things up with the introduction of the two rival queens, Fredegund and Brunhild. This episode will look at the beginning of their struggle and address some of the difficult discussions we have been avoiding thus far in episode 13, How to Start a Blood Feud. As I laid out at the start of this series, every week I try to blend the entertaining stories with important historical perspectives to make this podcast both informative and interesting. Sometimes we get bogged down in the details, and sometimes we skip some to tell a more interesting story, but we always try to be accurate and at least somewhat balanced. But there is a topic I have been skirting for weeks now, and that is the sexual realities of the Merovingian period. This podcast has tried to highlight the large and often underappreciated role women played in Merovingian history. This topic was actually the focus of my thesis, so it is probably not surprising that it has bled through here. But I truly believe it is the most accurate way to discuss the period. That being said, I have neglected to discuss the realities women of all stations faced in this period despite sharing several stories where such realities are important. I have not been forced to talk about these uncomfortable topics, so I have largely skirted them and merely implied things. But with the appearance of the two rival queens, such discussions become impossible to ignore, so I'm going to go ahead and mark this episode as explicit, and we're going to dive right into the conversation. Now, I must say, I have not been avoiding this sex talk because I am a prude, or because I felt it would be too much for you, dear listener. In fact, I have mostly been avoiding it because it involves a lot of nuance and guesswork, and isn't particularly well presented or discussed in our sources. Gregory, of course, would never include the intimate details of the bedroom. He is a court gossip, not a modern tabloid journalist. But even our modern historical sources don't often approach the subject, if only because they mostly don't feel the need to. Sex, and how it worked in the Merovingian period, is complicated. So, let's discuss it. First, let's talk about consent. This may seem like an obvious statement, but in the Merovingian courts, there was no real concept of consent. We have already met several women who you can probably guess likely never gave consent. The idea of a young Radigund willingly sleeping with the old man who had murdered her family and kept her locked away for years is ridiculous. Similarly, the widows who were defiled by Clothar, the former wives of Clodomer and Theudebald, don't strike me as particularly willing participants either. We can fairly safely state that the Merovingian courts were rife with many cases of rape. It must also be pointed out that rape was a common weapon and consequence of war then, as it is today, 
and the Merovingians loved war. Chroniclers like Gregory may shy away from recording such things, but they were certainly happening. But once we move past the obvious cases, things get a little murkier. Let's take Deuteria for an example. If you remember back a few episodes, Deuteria was the wife of a noble who gave up her city to Theudebert when his army began besieging it. Theudebert took a liking to her and took her back north with him, first making her his mistress, then his wife. Now, the question is, did Deuteria want to go with him? This is certainly a possibility. As the wife of a powerful Merovingian, her options were a lot better than the wife of an obscure noble in Visigothic Septimania. She also later killed her daughter when she was reaching the age where she might be a competitor for Theudebert's attention. These actions can be read as a cunning woman who wanted to gain, then maintain, power. This certainly occurred, and is also entirely possible in this case. But, there is also another possibility. Perhaps, Deuteria was simply taken as war spoils by Theudebert, completely against her own wishes. Or perhaps, she was happy to sleep with him once, but was then taken away and kept by the greedy king. Perhaps she killed her daughter not to remove a rival, but to spare the young woman rape at the hands of her husband. This is also entirely possible. We simply do not know enough about the situation, or enough about Deuteria, or trust our sources enough to make a statement one way or the other with any kind of certainty. As we will soon see with Fredegund, women did covet the role of queen, despite its dangers, and did use sex as a way to achieve power, but this does not mean all women thought that way. And as we've seen, Merovingian kings were not known for their restraint. Ideas of chivalry around the treatment of women simply did not exist yet, and plenty of women would have fallen victim to a king or noble without the man thinking twice about it. My point is simple. We simply do not know enough to make a call about women like Deuteria. Perhaps they were willing participants, perhaps not. Perhaps some women sought a Merovingian's bed for the power. Perhaps some simply were making the best of a bad situation. It is worth remembering Radegund again. Her lack of children despite ten years of marriage, and her actions whilst queen and building her holy reputation, suggest that not only was she making the best of a bad situation, but she was actively working to protect herself from Clothar. Women like Deuteria, or Merifled, Theudachild, or several others we have discussed, might have been victims like Radegund, or might not have been. We cannot know for sure, but the possibility must always be kept in mind. Now, I have mentioned sex as an avenue to power, and it is an important point, so let's talk about that too. As I've said many times before, it was the proximity to the person of the king that gave a queen power. Sometimes this was done through a regency, which we will discuss in later episodes, but most of the time it was as the king's wife. Now the Merovingians may have been polygamists, but they seem to have had favourites, and the favourite wife 
always had the advantage. Because she spent more time with the king, and he held her in higher regard, her influence was greater than her fellow wives. This is a common occurrence in history, with plenty of examples from courts with harems, ranging from the Ottomans to the Mughals to the Chinese emperors. Like these other examples, the power of the favourite wife came from the reality of authoritarianism. Like a Chinese emperor or an Ottoman sultan, a Merovingian king was the ultimate authority in the realm. In practice, all power flowed through him. This is even more important for us because of the realities of Merovingian politics. As we discussed in episode 11, the Merovingian kings deployed a particular strategy when it came to dealing with the different factions in the realm, the equidistant strategy. Long story short, they sought to keep the peace and balance between the competing factions who all coveted the king's attention by essentially keeping them all at arm's length and not letting anyone close enough to make the others jealous. This worked in this period because of the authority the kings wielded, and because the other groups were more interested in competing than working together to demand things from the monarch. So, as one of the few people who had regular and close contact with the king, the queen became an important power broker, able to sway the king one way or another depending on her own interests. Smart queens like Radegund, Fredegund, and Brunhild would build on this, but this system was the core way queens wielded power. This is why keeping a king's attention was such a crucial priority for the queens. If they lost the king's ear, they lost their position and were vulnerable to revenge from those they might have wronged in their politicking. And the easiest way to keep a king's attention? Well, with sex, obviously. It may be unpleasant, but sex was one of the key ways women gained and used power in this period, and both Fredegund and later Brunhild would weaponize their sexuality to consolidate their hold on power. As we talked about way back in the first couple of episodes, the people of Francia were in an odd position. Roman social and cultural norms were fading quickly, and the Franks don't seem to have had anything concrete to replace them with. The group that probably benefited from this the most was women, specifically aristocratic women, who were able to act and live with a lot more freedom than before. Eventually, norms would form, and the prominent place Merovingian queens enjoyed would come under threat, but not quite yet. Now, with all that said, this is a good place to introduce our main characters for this week. The two queens get two very different descriptions. This is how Gregory describes Brunhild as she first arrives in Chrem for her marriage to Sigebert. Quote, This young woman was elegant in all that she did, lovely to look at, chaste and decorous in her behaviour, wise in her generation, and of good address. End quote. How was Fredegund, wife of Chilperic, described, I hear you ask? Well, in the very next chapter, she appears for the first time. And her grand entrance into the narrative? Quote, he also loved Fredegund, whom he had married before. End quote. And that's it. 
It is with these two women and their accompanying kings we see Gregory's personal opinions really come to the fore. Just for a taste, let's hear a couple things that a later source has to say about Brunhild, because the Chronicle of Fredegar paints a very different picture, describing her both as, quote, the old serpent and as, quote, Jezebel. Both of these are biblical references. Jezebel, of course, referencing her apparent immorality and shameless lust, while with the old serpent, the author is literally calling her the devil. How's that for some contrast? Untangling truth from these sources is a difficult task, but like we have before, we must focus on reading between the lines and making educated guesses to fill in the blanks. Gregory's portrayal of these women is complicated, but knowing where his personal biases sit helps us analyse and adjust the presentation of these queens. Gregory has many good things to say about Brunhild, but her arrival was not particularly dramatic. At first, she is really only a pawn in the ongoing conflicts between the Merovingian kings. As Gregory writes, quote, King Sigebert observed that his brothers were taking wives who were completely unworthy of them, and were so far degrading themselves as to marry their own servants. He therefore sent messengers to Spain and asked for the hand of Brunhild, the daughter of King Athanagild. Now Gregory's personal opinions are clear here. He doesn't like the king sleeping around with lower class women, especially if they marry them. Of course, we know that sleeping around with and marrying lower class women is quintessentially Merovingian, but Gregory would like us to believe otherwise. Despite this, the marriage of Brunhild is still significant. Even though the Merovingians could marry whomever they pleased, the choice to marry a Visigothic princess while his brothers were getting caught up in various scandals with lower class women was an important one for Sigebert. Even if his brothers were well within their rights, it still painted a stark contrast between them and Sigebert. We can see this as yet another attempt by Sigebert to build his prestige and assert himself above his brothers, especially important since he had just suffered an unexpected and humiliating defeat at the hands of the Avars in 566, and had been forced to bribe them to leave. He received a large dowry from King Athanagild, which would have helped to restore his treasury after this disaster, and held a large, high-profile banquet to welcome his new bride, and she even converted to the Nicene Creed of Christianity, which was dominant in Francia, with little fuss. The way this event was played up shows Sigebert was aware of the significant effect his image could have, and milked the wedding for all of its propaganda value. And it seems to have worked. Charibert was dead, and Guntram seems to have been content to sit in Burgundy and let his brother have his day, but the marriage quickly got under Chilperic's skin. Remember, he thought he was Clothar's best and rightful heir, and seeing his elder brother marrying a foreign princess in a lavish ceremony seems to have ticked the king and Soissons off to no end. So, despite having a number of wives already, 
Chilperic sent messengers to Spain to ask King Athanagild for another one of his daughters. According to Gregory, he even promised the Visigothic king that he would dismiss all of his other wives in favour of the princess. So, Athanagild agreed, sending his daughter Gelswinth off with another large dowry to wed the youngest Merovingian. The story of Gelswinth is a tragic one, and one shrouded in a bit of confusion. Gregory's version of the story has some odd details which are a bit jarring when placed against one another. He is writing about a king and queen he hates, but who also control his city and have the ability to make his life a misery, which they will later do. On top of this, his sympathy for Gelswinth is clear, and all of these things come together to make this contradictory and bizarre chapter that makes little sense. We could break it down, but that would balloon the length of this episode far past where it should be. So, to avoid this confusion, I'm going to take the liberty of skipping Gregory's messy version, and instead present you with what I think is probably closer to the truth. For you see, Chilperic was already in love with one of his wives, Fredegund. Who Fredegund was, and where she came from, is not entirely clear. Given her proximity to the king, and her razor-sharp political reflexes, it seems most likely she was the daughter of a noble, but we cannot say this for sure. What we can say is that she was one of the wives that Chilperic put aside to marry Gelswinth. The other wives fade into obscurity. Fredegund, however, seems completely unwilling to fade into the background. If there is one word we can use to describe Fredegund, it is ambition. She stayed at court, waiting for her chance to reassert herself. The marriage of Chilperic and Galswinth seems to have been a rocky one. She apparently converted to Nicene Christianity, like her sister had, but there seemed to have been major issues, and she and Chilperic fought constantly. Whether these issues were due to her resentment at having to give up her faith, or due to his philandering after promising to be faithful to her, we can't be sure. I tend to think it might have been both. But there is a telling clue. Fredegund was not gone. We know she was still in the court, still in contact with Chilperic, and still waiting for her chance. Chilperic apparently loved her dearly, but his relationship with Galswinth kept getting in the way. Here is where Gregory's narrative fails us, and we have to fill in some blanks with little more than conjecture. We know Fredegund was there, had the king's interest, and was ambitious. We know she would have known that her best shot at power was by his side as queen with no other rivals. We know Chilperic was lusty, greedy, and rash in his actions. We know Galswinth was unhappy and complained constantly about her treatment, and even asked to return to Spain and the Visigothic court. With all of this in mind, a likely series of events becomes clear. Chilperic, sick of Galswinth's complaining, comes to Fredegund and asks her to return to his bed. Fredegund, 
knowing this is her moment of maximum leverage, refuses, and states that if he wants her, he must remove Gelswinth from the court. Chilperic, frustrated in more ways than one, tries to persuade Fredegund, but she holds firm. Chilperic is now stuck in a difficult situation. He wants to be rid of Gelswinth, but then he would be honour bound to return her large dowry to Thanagild, which he doesn't want to do. He could send her off to a villa, but then Fredegund apparently won't return to his bed. She knows that she is safer with Gelswinth gone for good. So, seeing no other option, Chilperic sends a servant to Gelswinth's chambers, who garrots her and then presents her corpse to the king. He feigns sadness at his wife's death, but within a few days, Fredegund is back in his bed. His favourite wife is back, he gets to keep all the treasure, and Fredegund's path to power is clearer than ever. The whole episode is harsh, cruel, and full of greed. All things we have seen before in this series. But you can hopefully see the importance of what we discussed earlier in this episode. If this is really how things went down, you can see how much of Fredegund's plan hangs on Chilperic needing her in his bed again. It is her use of sex to manipulate the king that sparks him to action, resulting in Gelswin's death and the fallout from it. And what did this fallout entail? Well, it wasn't pretty. Chilperic had picked a good time to make this heinous act, as his two half-brothers were caught up in a dispute about the ownership of the city of Arles. Sigebert seems to have been testing his elder half-brother, possibly thinking that Guntram's lack of military skill might mean that he could simply take what he wanted from the king in Burgundy. He was mistaken, however, as Guntram wasn't a military man himself, but he dispatched a capable man named Celsus, who defeated Sigebert's army, and the whole situation ended with the status quo being restored. Gregory records that during this period, the murder of Gelswinth occurred. He claims that Sigebert and Guntram, quote, had a strong suspicion that he, Chilperic, had connived the murder of the queen, and they drove him out of his kingdom, end quote. This seems unlikely. As we've seen a few times before, Gregory often overstates the success of military campaigns to a maximalist degree. If Gregory is to be believed, every campaign ended either with complete victory or total disaster, and since Chilperic is later seen in his kingdom as normal, we can pretty safely discount Gregory's offhand comment. More likely, Sigebert and Guntram were angry that Chilperic had angered the Visigoths in Spain by killing one of their princesses, so they seized a couple of cities and made a lot of noise about his villainy to appease the Visigoths, but likely took no more action. So the kings didn't really come down all that hard on Chilperic. It seems like he's gotten away with it, right? Well, those at the time might have been forgiven for thinking so, but everyone was forgetting about Brunhild. Sigebert might have had other priorities, and she might be new in his court, but she was certainly not going to let this go. 
Gelswinth was actually her older sister, and we don't know whether they were close or not, but we do know that Brunhild refused to forgive the murder, and would devote the rest of her life to avenging herself on those who she blamed. Fredegund and Childperic might not know it just yet, but they had made a far more dangerous enemy than they could possibly imagine. Unlike Fredegund, Brunhild does not seem to have possessed innate political talent at the beginning of her career. The period following Gelswinth's murder saw a lot of political turmoil, both inside and outside of the Merovingian kingdom, and the king's attention would be elsewhere for a while. But Brunhild slowly began to build momentum in her quest. Eventually, she would get better and better at influencing Sigurd and politicking at court, kicking off a feud between her and Fredegund that wouldn't be resolved until her death nearly 50 years later, and would result in massive bloodshed, tragedy, and pain for the Merovingian kingdoms. Next week, we're going to take a quick detour and talk in detail about our friend Gregory. He's been mentioned a lot, and I've even talked about some important parts of his life. But before he appears as a major player in his own history, it is important we understand who he is, how he writes, and where his priorities lie. It's going to be a bit of a departure for us, as we're going to discuss a lot of new stuff, like church politics, Gallo-Roman families, and literary techniques. It'll be a bit of a breath of fresh air for us, leaving the brewing conflict amongst the royals on hold for the moment, but it is now necessary for our understanding of the narrative that we have been following. See you then.